Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce a guest who has seamlessly transitioned from the disciplined world of the British Army to the dynamic realm of civilian fitness. Coach Jason Curtis. Jason's journey is one of resilience, innovation, and a deep understanding of the human psyche. After serving six years as an Army physical training instructor, he ventured into the civilian fitness industry with a vision and sheer willpower. Despite initial financial challenges, he identified a unique niche, bringing strength and conditioning to the masses. This approach not only transformed his training sessions, but also led to the establishment of his own gym and the publication of 20-plus best-selling books on Amazon. In today's episode, we delve deep into Jason's innovative fitness race, The Deadly Dozen. Set on an athletics track, this race is designed to challenge participants in a unique way. Jason envisages The Deadly Dozen as a standardized sport, aiming to take it to national and international levels with the potential of licensing out and even hosting competitions for the top 12 athletes in the world. But our conversation goes beyond just fitness. We explore the profound philosophy of Stoicism, a topic both Jason and I are deeply passionate about. Jason shares how Stoicism, often misunderstood as mere emotional suppression, is actually about understanding and embracing challenges, taking an intellectual approach to problems, and determining the best course of action. He credits his reading of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and other Stoic teachings for providing him with the mental tools to navigate the stresses of business and life. We touch upon the traits of high performers, where Jason emphasizes that one of the key traits is Stoicism. He believes that high performers see their commitment as non-negotiable, making it a habit to consistently perform at their best. This mindset, combined with the Stoic principles of understanding what's within one's control and accepting what's not, sets high performers apart. By the end of this episode, you'll gain a deeper understanding of the dedication it takes to transition from one world to another, the innovation behind the Deadly Dozen, and the transformative power of Stoicism in shaping one's mindset. 
For those eager to delve deeper into Jason's work or connect with him, you can find him on Instagram at Strength and Conditioning Course. And the link is also in the show notes. So grab your headphones, settle in, and let's get going on this awesome journey with Coach Jason Curtis. Jason Curtis, welcome to the next episode of the podcast here. It's really great to have you here. You've been really kind with rescheduling. I think I messed, mucked up at one time, so apologies about that, but glad we're sitting here today. But listen, um, firstly, how are you doing? And secondly, if you want to give a brief intro to yourself and possibly more so through the British Army and, and how that journey began. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing great today, actually. It's a, a nice evening. I'll be doing some writing later. But yeah, so um, I'm Coach Jason Curtis. Um, prior to joining the Army, I was always into sport and fitness. I did a lot of combat sports. You know, I was, I was quite good, but wasn't going anywhere. Wasn't going to be a world mm-hmm. champion or anything like that. Um, but I joined the British Army. I joined the infantry, but I quickly became a physical training instructor, which was obviously sort of projected me into the career that I've gone into. But I always knew from quite a young age that I wanted a gym. I wanted to do a physical job. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to be in the army. So they were sort of the two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a soldier and I wanted to do something involved with fitness because I always loved fitness. And so I spent six years as an army physical training instructor. And mm-hmm. on the last two years of which I was at Catterick where I trained infantry recruits. Um, well, and that really. was a brilliant time because alongside when you are a PTI in the infantry, you're sort of 50-50, you do a lot of gym work, and you also do a lot of just basic soldiering. When mm-hmm. I got posted to Catterick, you, I was 100% a PTI, so physical training instructor. And I had a lot of time to then do more work with strength and conditioning and sort of doing more sort of personal development on my qualification side, you know, the things nice. that I was interested in. And then from there, obviously, I left the army, eventually got a gym, which I'm sure we'll go more into, but I got a gym, mm-hmm. set up an educational academy, started publishing various books. Um, now I've got sort of a fitness race. So there's various things that I'm working on at the moment, which I'm I sure we'll it. get into. I don't want to sort of take a deep dive and, <laughs> and be waffling yeah. on for about an hour. But that's no, essentially where gonna... we are now as an overview. Amazing. And even before we started recording, you know, just the, the amount of productivity that you do. And I'm definitely going to ask you your question on, on, on you know, how, uh, how prolific you are with your content, which is incredible. And so a couple of things just to kind of go back a couple of steps. I'm um, firstly quite interested in the sports that you were attracted to as a youngster. What did you, what did you gravitate to? So I was most gravitated to combat sports, specifically like Muay Thai, so Thai boxing. Mm-hmm. And that was purely because I think I was very, you know, laddish as a young lad. You know, very, very game, very, you know, I wanted to do the toughest sport. So although I loved sport and fitness, to me, once I started doing the combat sports, used to watch a little bit of K1 and Pride, you know, even before mm-hmm. sort of I really got into the USC days that a lot of people are into now, watched a mm-hmm. lot of Pride um, and it was quite violent. And I think as soon as I started to practice that martial arts, boxing and Thai boxing specifically, they're a little bit more heavier, full contact. Other sports just came across as just not hardcore enough for me. And I think as a young <laughs> lad, I wanted that element of like, this is hardcore. It's the same reason why sure. I wanted to join the army and I wanted to join the infantry. In my mm-hmm. views, you know, you don't watch a, an army film about, you know, engineers or, or someone else per se, even though they're all as important as each other. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a soldier that spent every day yep. soldiering. And, and when it came to sport, I always used to argue that, you know, you know, if you're on a desert island fighting for the last coconut, you're not going to play a game of football. You know, you're going to have a fight. <laughs> so I always, I always deemed fighting to be either the most primal form of competition. So I think it was that mm-hmm. element of 
being a young lad that wanted to prove himself. That's what I gravitated mm-hmm. towards. And I liked mm, the nice. fact that it was a little bit hardcore. I liked Thai boxing because they used to call it, well, they call it the science of eight limbs. So it was like the two arms, you can elbow, you can knee, you can kick, you can do everything. And mm. um, back when I was a youth, there wasn't as much MMA about, you know, this was still yep. pre-UFC hype. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I probably would have gone more into the sort of jujitsu as well, but mm. I was never really exposed to that. Um, mm. Well, yeah, I loved and it. And you, you, you said pride. Can you just explain that? So Pride was one of the, I think it was a Japanese event that was like prior to uh, run alongside sort of UFC in the early days, but it was it was quite hardcore. Like they were allowed to stomp on the head and soccer kick while they're on the floor. You know, so a lot of the guys that transitioned into um, UFC came from Pride and it mm-hmm. was it was very hardcore. And in all honesty, I don't really, I think a lot of the time sports could be better or safer. You get more participation. You know, it's something yep. there's, you know, as a, as a father of kids now, I don't really want my kids' heads being smashed in. You know, I did a lot of sparring young. And, mm-hmm. and there's elements to it where I'm like, I wouldn't necessarily condone it now. And I don't really want to see, you know, cage fighters getting getting destroyed. I, I prefer to see the technicality of it. But definitely sure. as a young lad, I think when you want to prove yourself, that was a big attraction to me, you know, being the mm. tough guy, being good at this, getting in the ring, not being scared of anyone. And... But in all honesty, as an adult, I've I've gravitated away from that. Where I still love boxing, yeah. I still love it. Mm. But it was definitely like a young man sort of, you know, testosterone fueled. I want to be good at this, and I was yeah. all right. But I was never going to be a world champion. You know, I enjoyed it, but um, you know, it's not something I would carry on. And that's really interesting because you mentioned something there, and I was going to ask about how did your parents start to enjoy that, and now you as a father of a couple of kids, yeah. So how did your parents take it when you wanted to kind of basically beat everyone up? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they said the old joke where they said uh, I was quite good. I used to always come second. No, I was, I was all right. <laughs> not bad. But um, my dad wasn't fussed, but he was always aware of like being like punch drunk syndrome. He was always like, you'll end up okay. punch drunk. You'll end up slurring your words because I was a bit too game when it came to, you know, sparring. And, and my mum didn't mind it. They didn't come to a lot of my fights a lot of the time, you know. So mm-hmm. my mum actually, what was, I always say to people, it's quite funny. You know, now that female fighting's got a lot, you know, you've got Ronda Rousey and all the ones that are coming out now. And it's quite normal mm-hmm. these days. But I always remember that when I when I used to go to the shows and um, there would be females fighting, it wasn't the men that were phased by that. All the men were like, yeah, great. You know, these these women are brilliant. It was actually like my mum and a lot of the women that didn't like it. So my mum seen the okay. women fighting and she was like, I really didn't like that. I didn't like the, Interesting. Two, the two young girls hitting each other. All the men were fine. They were like, you know, it's mm. a harder. <laughs> but... A lot of the women sure. were like, didn't like it, whether it, you know, wow. and that's, that was an interesting thing. But yeah, my mum and dad were, you know, incredibly liberal. Like you did what you wanted to do. If you did want to play sport, mm-hmm. you played sport. If you didn't want to play sport, you didn't have to play sport. So they yes. were absolutely fine. And, mm. and like I say, my dad was supportive. My dad's always been very competitive with us. You know, I remember I had one fight. It was like against a Welsh lad. And one of the first things he said to me was, your boxing wasn't very good, was it? And, I was, okay. and it probably wasn't to be fair, but he was quite harsh in that way. And wow, yeah, yeah. He's just a very much like, you know, a little, we're quite harsh on each other, like sarcastic and, and stuff like mm. that. But no, it was never met with any form of, oh, we don't want you to do this. But me as a got father, <laughs> I've got two boys and a girl. I definitely mm-hmm. want to teach them. So my oldest is eight. My middle mm. boy is three today. Wow. And then... Yeah. Um, Sorry, yesterday. Yesterday, it's, I've lost mm. a day. And my youngest is one. She's a little okay. girl. And 
I will teach them all to fighters in hip pads because I think it gives you a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. It's not about necessarily mm -hmm. defending yourself. It's just there's something empowering about, you know, lifting weights. There's even more empowering about being able to hit a bag or a pad. So I'll teach them mm -hmm. all to fight, you know, in terms of like hit throwing strikes. But I would be cautious of them getting in the ring and getting their heads knocked about severely. And I know that actually yeah, yeah. evidence around CT, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and stuff, there's a, a lot of it's actually quite baited. Um, mm -hmm. But I would be cautious of that. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, I love that. Well, well said. And um, just transitioning into your entry into the British Army, and then I, I just want to understand that timeline more. So you went into it with the mindset of you want to be a soldier. And then how did you transition into then the PT side of things? So actually, I, I went to Manchester recruitment office and I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a soldier. I, mm -hmm. I remember that from being very young that I wanted to, you know, have a rifle and do that sort of stuff. Um, but I wanted to be, I, I've heard of the role as physical training structure in the army and I wanted to do that. Okay. And mm -hmm. I, when I went to the recruitment office, I was set on joining the army. I don't really know why I was set on jo joining the army rather than Navy or Air Force. It was just that the army just seemed to be that was the cooler of the three. Um, mm -hmm. And I was set on being a physical training instructor, spoke to the recruitment guy who was a sergeant, and he said, you can't join as a PTI in the, in the infantry. You can't join the army. In the RAF, you can. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. you can in the, okay. the Navy, possibly. So in the yeah. army, you can't join as a PTI. So he said, but if you're really fit, mate, if you join the infantry, you'll be a PTI within a year or two. So if you, okay. if you join battalion, you're noticed as being very fit. You show interest in becoming a physical training instructor. They'll throw you on the mm -hmm. course. It's a 10-week course. You'll be a PTI. So I joined the infantry and was a PTI within a year. And, Amazing. Love that. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm sure there's some some pretty cool stories. We might even unpack those as we go. But let's um let's move into what you're doing now, your current role. I like to ask this question on podcasts. What's your elevator pitch? So you're going up the elevator. How would you, how would you say to anyone listening, what are you doing and who you are? So I'd probably open with the fact that I was an ex-army physical training instructor, but mm -hmm. I would then go into that I'm, I, I'm a gym owner. However, over the last 10 years, I've published over 20 books and I now run a educational academy where we qualify personal trainers and strength conditioning coaches. But my main aim now is because... I think my biggest strength essentially is that I'm not an academic, even though I've done mm -hmm. all this written work and ed education, you know, I've stemmed from the military. And um, so I'm quite good at making the complex simple because I'm not coming That's, from it yeah. from, you know, a PhD level. I'm not super smart. So I'm able to make the complex simple. And actually my biggest aim now is to do that with both education and also fitness as a whole. And I Love that. deem fitness racing as being one of the newest sports and it's going to be one of the fastest growing sports in the world. So I've developed my own fitness race that I deem as being the most accessible fitness race in the world. And it's the most accessible Wicked. training system in the world, in my Love opinion. it. <laughs> and we're definitely going to dive into that. It's, I believe it's called the Deadly Dozen, and I'm going to come to that in a sec. But I love, I love what you say about making the complex things simple. I think it was Da Vinci or someone said something like that. It's all Einstein. It's like, you've got to be able to tell the most complex thing to a two-year-old. And that's, that's the sign of genius that he was saying, which I thought was really cool. I was like, yeah, you know what? You don't need to sound clever, but can you take that complex thing and put it across in a simple way? So super on board with you. So yeah, you've written 20 plus books, I believe. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. A couple of things come to mind straight away. Um, firstly, the general themes and how you keep the idea of, of, of coming up with different themes. And secondly, what, what I love is, is, you know, like, how do you do it? Like, where's your creativity? How do you, 
how do you have the discipline to keep doing it? So yeah, a couple of questions there. Where do you want to start? So in terms of um, creativity and sort of how I come about the boxes, I think I'm quite lucky that I think everyone has sort of like, a, you know, a genetic predisposition where some people are a little bit more creative, some people are a little bit more organized and structured. And I definitely, mm-hmm. on that spectrum, I definitely sit on the slightly more creative side because I would say that I've often got my head in the clouds. So when it comes okay. to like administration and organization, I get distracted incredibly easily. And okay. I'm not a bureaucratic person. So I'm very much here, there and everywhere. But I do think that's a sign of the fact that I'm quite creative in essence. So mm-hmm. I'm never really short of ideas. However, I think my biggest strength as a writer, as a content creator, essentially, is the fact that I am very analytical when it comes to laying something out. So when it comes to programs, I'm very sort of sort of almost like obsessive um, about the rep schemes, about the way the exercises are ordered. So when it comes to a book, my creative process is I get the title of the book. So it might be right, strength training. From there, mm-hmm. I create a skeleton of the book, which is obviously chapters and subtitles. So I'll go, right, so we're breaking strength down. What is strength training? It's the progressive development of movement. So you've got fundamental movements. So braces, like the precursor, you know, being able to brace, create tension. Then you've got hinge, mm-hmm. squat, lunge, single leg, push, pull, rotate, gait is like your loading, carries, walking, running. So there mm-hmm. you go, straight away, there's eight chapters. And then nice. I think about, right, how many hinge exercises are there, like the deadlift, the RDL, the stiff leg deadlift, the single leg RDL, the kettlebell swing, how many squats are there? Back squat, front squat, Anderson squat, searcher squat, box squat, and goblet squat, bodyweight squat. <laughs> wow. And then you're like, right, we've got these. And then it's like, right, let's write an intro to each of them squats. Let's write what a teaching points for each of them. But then what I did is I created what was called like the big eight model, which was what is it to be a stretch? So you've got performance qualities, say, as, a, as an athlete, like muscular mm-hmm. strength, muscular endurance, cardiovascular fitness, speed, agility. And then it's like, what are the qualities that a strength conditioning coach needs or a coach? And I'm like, right, right. so you need the programming and periodization. So the theory behind how you put everything together, that's almost like the glue that sticks all together. Then I was like, well, mm-hmm. you've got warming up, you've got strength training, you've got ballistic training, you've got plyometrics, you've got Olympic weightlifting, you've got um, metabolic conditioning and, and speed and agility. And then mm-hmm. I was like, right, each one of them's a book. You know, I can break Amazing. them each down. It. And then it's it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. even thinking of things as one of my most successful books was called Muscles and Movement. And it was just okay. whenever I do personal training qualifications or anything like that, um, people, it's the anatomy side, the functional anatomy. They'd ask me about, right, so, you know, if the bicep does this, how do we work this? If the legs sure. do this, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of said, right, what is functional anatomy? And I just mm. sort of break it down what it is and I create a skeleton and then I just fill in the blanks. And the most, Amazing. the toughest point is the middle point. So the creating of the, the skeleton, brilliant. Yeah. And then you hit the middle point where you've been working on it through <laughs> that excitement. The grind. And then mm. it's like, you've got a lot done, but you've got a load more to do. And that's where you hit the wall. And then as you get towards okay. the end, when you're getting towards like the first draft, that's great. And then it's like the edit and the first edit's great. And then you're like, delve into this more and so there's a few walls within it but yeah that's that's an overview sure. of how I create do the creative process really amazing and a couple of things within that so you say you're you're writing or you're going to write after this as well are you continuous is it ever like a stop when you finish the book do you want to go I'm done for like six months a year or 
Are you pretty continuous with your writing? Oh yeah, continuous. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have I yeah. have Grammarly, and that you know that gives you stats and, yes. on how much you've been written. So I, I I've written every since I've had Grammarly, I've I've written every day, and it'll tell me like, oh, you you write more than ninety nine point whatever <laughs> percent of writers. And then it also says, yeah, and it, it, what else? What was it? it? said it was something, I think it was something like, I think I wrote something like, I can't remember the exact stat, but it was something along the lines of 600,000 words last year. Damn, um, man. Yeah, That's so wicked. It, yeah, it might have been a bit more. It kind of gamifies it for you then, doesn't it? There's this little bit of, yeah, like competition gamifying. I quite like that. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the elements is, though, I'm very, very lucky. And I think this is, you know, ingrained into people. I think there's a personality type aspect is... Mm-hmm is it's not necessarily hard work for me. Like, I enjoy writing, even though I'm not brilliant. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are like, oh, this guy's going to be, you know, an ex- I'm not an exceptional writer, and that's not be being, like, a modest British person. I genuinely, mm-hmm. like, I'm I'm just average at writing. Someone would edit a few of my... I even look back at some of my books and read a paragraph and go, that's... What was I thinking? That's terribly written. <laughs> but I enjoy it. And also, me and my wife have a relationship where we we don't go out for drinks much or for meals as much we spend a lot of time with our kids and nice. you know we get on really really well but she likes she likes going up with the kids she likes watching her youtube and mm-hmm. and i like sitting in my office where i am now this is like my sort of hub so you're zen if i was mm. yeah this is where i enjoy being like you can see i've got all the books and i've got like yeah, the, Lord yeah, of the Rings yeah. swords on the wall and this is Wicked. like my spot that i love so i'd rather be here now you know listening to a podcast writing away creating pdfs to social media than i would be watching a film so in all Wicked. honesty i enjoy doing this so it's not yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really it's work, not a job so, yeah no and that that obviously helps massively it's not just me being mm. really disciplined the first thing i yeah. think once the kids are in bed because you know kids are at work the thing <laughs> i look forward to after i finish the gym is having like a coffee and you know a few snacks and i'm sitting in my office that's why i look forward to yeah, love it. That's amazing. That's really good. Thanks for that insight. And maybe one more question on on the book front. How did you get the first book? And what I mean by that, like, you know, obviously you're going into a blank canvas. How do you contact a publisher? How do you, like, what are those processes and the, those steps? Because you might have these great ideas, but how do you actually get it into a physical copy? So, so this was actually, this is where I was quite lucky as well, was I'd always had an idea for a book, which was essentially called Train the Movements. And it was just about, you know, the whole, you know, bodybuilders might train muscle groups. And as S&C coaches, we train more movements like squat and lunge. And seeing that same training programs as movement-based rather than like muscle-based, that was the emphasis behind the book. And it was essentially the book that my strength training manual has turned into. And okay. so I had this idea and I was actually training. Um, someone had joined the gym and I was training with, I was training with them. And it just so came about that they were like one of the biggest indie publishers on Amazon for guitars, right? So they published guitars. That's lucky. Mm. Vastly successful. Um, his name's Joseph Alexander because if people want to search him, if they're interested in guitar. But he's, you know, he's hundreds and hundreds of guitar books, does incredibly well out of it. You know, the, he just came up with it, the idea of he can write guitar books in a way that are far more accessible. Mm-hmm. So I sort of said to him that, you know, I enjoy writing and I've always wanted to write this book. And this was sort of a... I always seen it as like a magnus opus, like this is my big manual I want to write. And it, the first <laughs> thing he said to me was, don't cry, try and create a symphony. You know, that's not the way to do it. Write a song. Nice. And he says, what's Good the advice. first chapter? And he says, make it 100 pages. And it was almost like his model of how he published. Um, mm-hmm. And the first book actually talks about posture and stuff like that. And I know posture is a little bit 
sometimes overemphasized and it's not as important as what some people might see in terms of injury. But the first mm-hmm. chapter in the book was basically just talk about how the body stands and the anatomy of the body. So he basically okay. just said, write me a book on that. I can market it to my guys because if you make it about like sitting and keeping yourself structurally healthy with basic exercise, I can sort of market that to my guitar guys. Mm, interesting. So, so he said he would publish that. Um, how cool is that? Yeah, it's pretty pretty fortunate to be fair. And we published it, became a bestseller on Amazon, which isn't too difficult to be fair in, That's in, awesome. in, in categories. But um, and I was really happy with that, and I published a few more books through him, which were all based on his model. However, when he edited my books because my writing wasn't brilliant, you know, we really edited it down, which was needed mm-hmm. for the style that we that he wanted. Mm-hmm. However, I wanted to start writing bigger manuals, and I wanted to write exactly how I wrote. Um, and it would have been too much work for him. I was sending him, you know, we're talking 10, 15K words, but I was wanting to write 100K words in a book, right? you know, creating right. manuals, you know. So it would have been too much work for him when he's got yeah, yeah, dozens yeah. of authors that are writing for him. So I decided when I created my academy that I was actually going to self-publish. And okay. um, fortunately, through technology, um, like Amazon, um. Essentially, it's very easy to self-publish. Okay. So what I did was I created manuscripts. I wrote them. I did all the images and got copyrights of various images that I needed off the web. And I published mm-hmm. it myself for Amazon. Nice. nice. And so far, I've, pub- I've self-published over 20 books. Um, Brilliant. And quite a few have got bestseller. And I sell dozens of books every day now through Amazon. That's amazing. Dude, I love it. And when you say self-published through Amazon, are we talking physical copy or the, just the digital copy? How does that work? Physical, so, yep. So, no, yep. So they're physical. So this is this is where Amazon's, you know, literally we're, we're talking, this is like a draft copy, hence why it's got, well, that's mm-hmm. the strength. Jeez, you know? that's pretty hefty, eh? Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's just one. You know, yep. there's probably another one down here somewhere. That's, <laughs> that's another one. You know, warming yep. up. Nice. Um, so basically, what the way it works, which is, you know, it's quite interesting knowledge for anyone that isn't aware of this, mm. but you've got what's called Kindle Direct Publishing. Mm-hmm. And basically, you upload a manuscript and a cover, and Amazon will give you the ISBN for free. And you can publish a paperback, hardcover, or Kindle edition, or all free, which I do for all of my books. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go on Amazon now, search Jason Curtis and find my strength training manual, yep. you buy that on Prime today. My book, Amazon will then print that book on demand. So they've not got a load sitting in a factory. They'll That's literally nuts. print that book on demand and send yeah. it to you and it'll be there within a couple of days. Dude, so you'll I love get that. Ha- it, it's, you know, as much as Amazon, you know, people might have views on Amazon and big yeah, corporations yeah. like Amazon. But in terms of like of that. their ability for me to publish books, and literally I've sold thousands and thousands of books. Amazing. Um, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it gives it gives me an opportunity that is one of the downside actually to, to sort of say, which is self-publishing is the downside of self-publishing is that there's there's a lower barrier to entry, obviously. Mm, so obviously yep. that that does lower the standard of book quality mm-hmm. and content within the book. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, though, it's it's writing the books like fifty percent of it, and then market and actually say, you, you know, you could write yeah. a book, but it's not going to sell any copies. You know, that's probably harder than writing the book. In all honesty, it selling is. the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm. at the end of the day, people are either going to buy it or they're not, and they're going to find value or they're not. But yeah, that's one of the yep. downsides, I'd say, to self-publishing. Mm. But the upside mm. to self-publishing, which I think is a good accessible, thing, mm. is its freedom. Is is, yeah. is is it's if you want to write and publish your content, you can, and it it is mm. quite easy. 
Yeah, well, thanks for sharing. I, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm super curious because I've got a, a quite a hefty ebook that I've got sitting there that I got to sell the ebook copy. And I'm like, I might be getting onto that at some point. So hey, you've given me some real juice. I didn't, yep, didn't know that process. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, publish it. Kindle Direct Amazing. Publishing. Perfect. I'll go, I'll be Googling that straight afterwards. So awesome. Right. Let's get into the next little bit that I'd like to talk about. Um, so you developed the SCC Academy. Can you talk about this? Like give us the whole context around this, please. Yeah. So, so I started to become an active IQ center. So that's, you know, one of the big governing bodies in the UK for the fitness industry and um, under SIMSPA, you know, the Chartered Institute for the Management of Sport and Physical Activity. Um, and that was just as my strength and condition, Jim, we can qualify personal trainers and strength condition coaches at level four. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create a academy, an online academy around this, which took the education to a much higher level and essentially was using the books that I'd written, turned them into online courses and vice versa. Some of the online courses then became books. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do this on an international level. So what I did was I set up a, you know, a learning platform and I took my big eight model, which was obviously, like I said, was the program appears, I did some warm up, strength training, ballistic training, plyometric, stuff like that, um, and created online courses for them. From there, what I did was the way that I got it quite popular initially is I, I actually wrote a muscle manual. And what right. I did with the muscle manual is rather than saying, here's the muscles on the front of the leg, here's the muscles on the back of the leg, it says it defines them as movement. So here are the flexors of the elbow. Here are the extents oh, cool. of the elbow. So the muscle manual actually shows the same muscle multiple times throughout the manual because mm. one muscle can do multiple roles, like the bicep mm. can flex the elbow, it can supinate the palm, stuff like that actually flexes the shoulder slightly. So what it does is it makes anatomy far more functional. And what I mean by functional anatomy is if you were to, you know, at, on a personal training qualification, someone might learn the, the direction of blood flow, food, or harm. That's not very mm-hmm. functional to um, working with a client or an athlete. However, understanding that the bicep does flex the shoulder slightly means that during a bicep curl, you, you are going to bring your elbows forward slightly. So it's functional to how you train. Sure. So I wanted to create mm-hmm. a muscle manual that wasn't just learning these long, fancy names. It was going, right, this is your, 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 your rectus mm-hmm. femoris. This, not only does it extend the knee, but it also flexes the hip. Right. And... In a way that was far more intuitive. So I basically, awesome. I was like, I was a bit dubious about having the muscle manual as a lead magnet. Because what you need when you have an online academy is you need a lead magnet that's free, that draws mm-hmm. people in. Mm-hmm. They, you then get their email and then you upsell to them. You might have a tripwire course, which is a cheaper course. They buy that. They gain some mm-hmm. trust. They like your content. They buy the more expensive courses. That's, that's the way most online models work. What's funny mm-hmm. is sometimes I'd get people commenting going, you're just trying to get my email. I'd be like, yeah, no. No shit yeah, show exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm giving you. A I'm giving you some spent. good free content. Yeah, yeah here it is. I'm serving yeah. it up for you. But they were always like, "Hey, I got you," and I was like, yeah, "That's the point." So I was yeah. dubious because anatomy is something people struggle with, but I always mm. always seen it as something that people didn't really enjoy as much. Right? They sort of thought, "What do I need to know this?" Right? So I was dubious about whether that as a lead magnet was going to be successful. But I put okay. a little bit of money into it, social media ads, and it got like twenty thousand downloads in the first week Very internationally. Nice. Maybe. And it was getting thousands of downloads like every week um, sure. because it was a good muscle man. And, yeah. and that started to sort of upsell to the, the sort of anatomy courses and then it got mm-hmm. people into it. So what we developed was was quite a good um, sort of straight away. We, we developed an academy that had quite a few thousand people in there. 
that were engaged nice. with our content, which was brilliant. From there, I was obviously trying to build social media. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not easy to do, but obviously because initially I was putting quite a bit of money into the advertising, not a huge amount, you know, tiny, tiny budget. If you were to mm-hmm. think about big business like this was mm-hmm. pennies, like yeah, we're talking, um, but big for me. Mm. And um, so I I developed a few thousand followers on Instagram, nice. But I I just didn't really want to create content that was the same as everyone else. So even though there's nothing wrong with that, I just thought that I'm not that great behind the camera that my my production value is not better than a mm. lot of the the instagrammers that have created videos even though i know i'm quite knowledgeable in my field yeah i've you know I've, i'm quite distinctive in my look you know mm. Mm. but um i just didn't think that i was going to make any waves because okay. so much so many people were creating really good videos yeah. so i was like well what yeah. do i do um, i sit in my office writing all the time so and what I do is I create skeletons of books where I go write squats. So I created like PDS where I'll just go write squat. And the first one I okay. did actually was a program. So because I'm writing mm-hmm. programs all the time, I get an idea like, oh, this is an idea with this rep protocol or this set protocol. Or it only uses these exercises. Or it's a pro, it's a strep program, but it doesn't have squat in it. Right? Right. So it's just something that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I create this 12-week program on my Instagram and on a PDF. So what I do is I do it on PowerPoint and I save it yep. as a PDF. So it's not mm-hmm. the most fancy looking. The writing's actually a little bit too small for Instagram. So it, right. in terms of, if someone were to look at it, they'd go, well, that's yeah, not what very well designed. Mm. You can barely read it. Right? Mm. So I saved it as a PDF. I then opened it on my phone. I screenshotted every two slides. Oh, right? wow. And then I, that's clever. That's clever. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I posted it and I said, follow and comment below for a free copy mm-hmm. of this 12-week pro. I thought I was going to get like two people comment. Yeah. Right? And I got like 500 people comment. And I individually, so I say I saved the Dropbox link and I sent the yep. Dropbox link to each person individually. It took ages, right? <laughs> and I was like, all right, maybe that's a one-off. I did it again with like another program. Yeah. Same again, like 300 comments. Wow. And then I was like, okay, this is starting to build. So I, yeah, you're seeing I did, a pattern. Mm. Yeah. So I, so I, I looked at my courses and books and was like, okay, well, let's do a PDF that goes top 10 squats and a back squat, front squat, that, you know, Anderson squat mm-hmm. on it. Just a little write-up on each one, posted that and that. Then the following started to grow, and over a six-month period, went up to over a hundred thousand followers. And that's where brilliant. That's where I was like, okay, like I'm onto something here. Mm. And that's where I realised that you know this was my niche that was taking quite complex SNC stuff and anatomy stuff and stuff like that, and and putting it down in very bite-sized chunks, but not in a bite-sized mm. chunk like an infographic or you know really well-designed you know mm-hmm. one by one Instagram post. My stuff was sort of in the middle. Where it yep. wasn't a textbook, but it wasn't mm. like a really well-designed graphic. It was like Got sort it. of fairly comprehensive in the middle. And I don't yeah, think yeah, many yeah. people were doing that. It's clever. And, mm. and that's what I've continued to do. And then I realized when it comes to, you've got to look at the economics of it. So I'm thinking, right, so if I'm writing a book, then I can take that page there, that can become a social media post. Mm. That page can also become a short article on this website. So it's getting more bang for You're your repurposing book. the whole thing, aren't you? Re- yeah. The mm. whole book. Like I can take a 200-page book and go, well, that's it might be a, <laughs> there might be 100 good posts in there. Mm, there might be 100 good. good articles in there. Mm-hmm. So I can build my SEO search engine optimization by posting the... I could basically take a page of the book, revamp it to be a little bit more specific to the website. I can throw mm-hmm. it into a PDF, put it onto social media. Then I can Love upsell it. the book. I can go, this has come... 
this book mm. and therefore then people click on and you're not and you're not cannibalizing the book at that point are you you're not kind of going oh well i'll just get all this stuff for free on social media it's, you're not you're obviously putting the whole book out there no. and yeah, people obviously want the physical copy as well don't they yeah exactly and and mm. that was something people always said to me that you're giving too much away for free but i think mm -hmm. because i've got so much con what people pay for is what people have got to realize is you can go on youtube and find pretty much whatever you want education wise yeah what people are paying for is for someone that they see as a trusted advisor, a trusted expert, to put it to to create a compendium. Exactly. So you might go right. I need to learn about squats, and then you might say, I might need to learn about elbow pain, or I might need to learn about this. So they 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 don't mm. know who to trust. They have to go through it. That I see it as they're paying me to put it all together. There we so go. So I think mm. I maybe do give a little bit too much away for free, but I enjoy mm. it, and I I see it as like it's 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 good for me. I feel good doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely give a little bit too much away for free, but I've actually found. Being more generous, if you do have a lot of content behind it, you can yeah. upsell it. Oh, um, massively, yeah. Where I did and go you're just wrong... creating continual trust, aren't you? Like, you know, yeah. it's like you're not, you're not there just kind of scamming people or continually just giving them the hard sale. They're like, hey, this guy's giving me value. I'm learning from him. And if they become a customer later, great. If not, you've actually provided value for them and they're yeah. going to be a supporter of you anyway. I think it's double bonus, yeah. isn't it? And, and like I say, it's a good thing where I feel good doing it and, and you are building a, a loyal client base. Where I think I went wrong is when I did start to market, I, I noticed my anatomy stuff was doing very well. Okay. So I started to market that bit and it was doing very, very well in like India and Pakistan and all, all, all around that area, right? So I was like, mm -hmm. wow, I'm onto something here. So I created a whole anatomy series, which I'm really happy I did. Right. It became a book. So I, I, I did like a 20 um, post series on anatomy. And then I just took all the content for them slides and threw them into a book. And it created a little oh, A5 nice. book. Um, but I realized the Indian market was huge for it. Right. So I started to run ads with these. And some of these posts got like 150,000 likes and thousands of thousands of comments and i was like but this is what helped to get me over a hundred thousand i was yeah absolutely buzzing however what was happening was i was getting loads of medical students i was getting loads of um you know basically indian doctors and medical professionals okay. and stuff like that right interesting however right. what i saw was a lot of the content was getting absorbed and it really grateful for all the content but it wasn't really converting into sales. No. And I also found my bread and butter is S&C. So although anatomy is a part of that, I was sort of developing an audience of like shifting more into the medical community because it was really simple right. anatomy stuff. And it was mm -hmm. great because I was getting professors message me and everything saying, this is really <laughs> simple. And doctors and stuff like that saying, oh, this is really simple. It's really refreshing. But they're not going to get their credit cards out, are they necessarily no. for you? <laughs> no, and but then... Then I start posting more S&C stuff again because I sort of have a big list of what I post now because I can recycle content. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm creating new content. And um, that's where I started to get a, a lot of drop-off. So I'm still, my pages grow, which is great, but it's mm. also like getting a lot of people like coming off because over the last six weeks, I well, longer than that, I realized, okay, this isn't converting and these aren't the type of people that are actually relevant to my academy. Mm. That it was almost like, feeding my ego of followers yes yeah, yeah, yeah it wasn't quite the right followers for my academy yeah yeah i suppose yeah. like what do they call in the industry is kind of like like they're not highly qualified leads are they they're kind of they're leads but they're not kind of highly qualified for your niche and what you're trying to basically sell at the end of the day yeah and that was it mm. and that was where it wasn't necessarily a bad move i learned a lot from it and it definitely got me to a point where i was hyped up with the amount of followers we we're getting per day and it was mm -hmm. like great but then i was realizing it's all about conversion it's all about quality 
Um, mm. You know, because a lot of these people were downloading free content and they just unfollowing me straight away. Sure. Wow. And, okay, and yeah. that's where actually, when I was growing a little bit slower and I was concentrating on, you know, making sure people were aware that we're more SNC based, strength and mm-hmm. conditioning, fitness rather than mm-hmm. anatomy. And, um, you know, I was getting a lot more sales. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Mm, you know, yeah. and people that are a little bit more committed and, you know, a true follower, if I were to try and engage them in another way, like through the stories, they'd be more engaged. So yeah, that was something I that, that I learned, a big, big learning point for me. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing story. Thank you for taking us on that journey. And as again, I'm curious, cause obviously I'm, I find like I'm on a similar path to you, like in a slightly different niche and everything like that, but obviously working on the mindset and trying to provide, you know, good mental stimulation for people. So we've mentioned the deadly dozen. I'm quite curious to what this is. I've, I've been kind of thinking about it for a while. So sell it to me. What is the deadly dozen? So basically I, I, um, I always trained really hard. So the sort of backstory is how the concept of the race basically is I always trained really hard. I was fit. I was, I was very small as a young lad and you know, I'm over six foot now, but I was like, I used to compete at 57 kilos, like nine stone. When I joined the army, I was like 60 odd kilos. Wow. When I left the army, I was like 90 kilos. Okay. I got into powerlifting because I, I think I almost developed a bit of bigger X here and, you know, wanted to be bigger because I was always that skinny mm. tie boxer and cross country runner. I wanted mm-hmm. to be bigger. I wanted to be a powerlifter. I wanted to be seen as an S&C coach, like a strength coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when COVID hit, so obviously when I got posted to Catrick, you had a lot more opportunities to get in the gym. So even though you're doing a lot of miles, you know, marching and running every week, there was sort of an emphasis at Catrick of like get big and strong. You know, you have a lot of time to get in the gym because you're not soldiering mm-hmm. and you're not on exercise with hardly any calories, right? So everyone was like, get, a lot of them were like, get big. So I fell into that and I really got into powerlifting and weightlifting and, 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 and building muscle. And then through lockdown, I was not drinking excessively, but I was drinking regularly, which I never, I never drank through the week, you know, binge drank in the mm-hmm. army, but never really drank regularly. I did in lockdown a little bit more because it was almost like the way to break up the day. Sure. And I went up to like 18 stone, like over like 110 kilos, say. Wow. Right? And, yeah. um, and basically I got to a point where I wasn't getting a buzz from like just lifting weights because I was so okay. busy. So, because the gym is my office, I'd be like, do a set of back squat and I'll sit down, answer an email. And there was no buzz. And then hmm. someone said to me, you know, will you partner with me? So we have loads of people that do fitness racing and stuff like that. Have you heard of High Rocks? No, I haven't. So High Rocks is like the biggest fitness race in the world now, where you basically okay. do eight times 1K, you do a 1K run, 1K. Ah, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah I have heard of this. So it's getting huge. Me. They've got like yeah. 5,000 people to the event. It sells out like that, right? Amazing. It's all over the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone asked to do that with me and I was like, all right, I'll do it. You know, naturally, genetic wise, I'm definitely, you know, I'm quite fit. You know, I have mm-hmm. a, quite a good baseline. I'm not world-class, but I'm, I'm quite fit. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So I started to train like running, rowing, you know, farmers carry. So it wasn't, it was true fitness racing, what I call conventional fitness racing. So CrossFit is fitness racing, but it's mm-hmm. very, te- it's what I call specialist fitness racing. It's got a high sure. barrier to entry. So it uses Olympic weightlifting, like ring dips, very much gymnastic movements like handstand walking. I'm just not into it. It's great. I'm not into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So conventional fitness racing for me is like, there's no technical barrier to entry. There's no big heavy weights, like, but it's, it's something like a 32 kilo kettlebell. It's like skier, it's rower, it's running, it's farmer's carry with a 20 kilo sure. dumbbell in each hand. It's that sort of stuff. So I started training for that and I was like, oh, wow, this is what I've been missing. Mm-hmm. And I lost close to four stone now. Yeah, so, I, so I lost over, <laughs> lost over 25 kilo. And, um, even though, you know, I'm, I'm 15, 10, 10, 15 years older than when I was a young PTI, 15 mm-hmm. kilos heavier still, cause I'm about 85 kilos now. Okay. Um, 
I feel fitter and healthier than I've ever felt. I've got no injuries. And, sure. and, and when I was stretching, I was stretching well. I would get the odd nig- nig- niggle or whatnot or elbow niggle. Mm-hmm. But with this, I've never felt fitter and better. That's incredible. And I, um, I just love the buzz of it. So I quite like training mm-hmm. hard. I miss that buzz that I got as a young lad to high boxing. I got as a young army physical training instructor. I've gone too far into the strength side. So I loved racing, fitness racing. And I was like, you know what? I want to create my own fitness race. Because cool, I'm man. very analytical with it. And I'm like, mm. but what I want to do is I want to create the most accept because my niche within education is make it accessible, make, make the complex simple. I was like, I want to create the most accessible fitness race in the world where you can train for it in any gym in the world. You can train for it in your garage, in the park. You can, and it can be done anywhere in the world. So cool. I was okay. like, but, but then the idea was basically, I was like, what, what, what sort of appeals to me? I was speaking to another coach that I know. And I was sort of like, when I get an athlete that's not a runner and they're, they've got a really good 5K time, I'm all like, this guy or woman's a beast. You know, if you've got a good 5K time, you're not a runner. You're like a rugby player that runs a sub 25K like, and you're mm-hmm. a big guy. You're like, you're probably a monster. One of the mm-hmm. most famous methods of developing your 5K time, which is a very hard run, is 12 times 400. So okay. 400 yeah. meter loops. And it just so happens that the park near me has a 400 meter loop on it. So I was like, oh, you could run okay. around the park do an exercise station, run around the park, do an exercise station. But then I was uh, like, actually, okay, you could okay. do it on an athletics track. Yeah. So I was like, there's an athletics track in Macclesfield. Now, when you go to athletics track, they're unbelievable facilities. And they're actually, mm. you know, the one near me is really cheap to rent. So for nice. a very small amount of money, you get this huge facility. So basically, yeah. I came up with the name Deadly Dozen. So it's 12 <laughs> it's times 400. Mm. It's 400 meters. On a track, there's two distances that are really horrendous because they're not short enough to be a sprint and they're not long enough to pace yourself. And that's like the 400 mm. and the 800. But I, I was um, like, a, well, I, I represented Zimbabwe at 800. So oh, wow. I, I hated it, I, but I was good at it. Yeah. But I literally couldn't stand it because, you know, trying to get sub 60 seconds for both 400s, it just blew my mind. And I was managed to do it, but it was brutal. So wow. I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. It's so they're, they're, the, they're the grim. They're the, they're the mm. like, like I say, it's the gold lock zone of like hurt. That's like hurt yeah. locker zone, isn't it? <laughs> 800 is probably a worse, right? So that's a horror show. So I was like, it's, it's, it's a lot. So I need 12 exercise now that only use body weight, kettlebell, dumbbells, and plates. And cool, that's man. the only thing. And I want it to work all the fundamental movement patterns. So squat, lunge, push, pull. I want freeloaded carries. I want things that you're pressing overhead. I want squats. I want lunges. So basically, okay. I've got a printout. So that's how yeah, it looks. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And the way it works it. is basically what these black things are are timing mats. Okay. So when you cross your chips as an athlete, so you do a 400 cool. meter. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we've got your 400 meter time, and that's trapped on the computer. You cross this timing yeah, yeah, mat, yeah. and we call them yeah. labors. Because it's 12, I, I sort of thought 12 labors are Hercules. I'm going to call them labors. You've got 12. So X, cool. They're the labors. Yeah, they're labors, and they're the labors you're doing. So. You cross the tire and that the first exercise is farmer's carry. Everything's okay. dozenal because it's, you know, duodecimal system because 12, yep. you can divide it by two, three, and four. So it mm. works well when it comes to like programming. So it's 200, because there's a, there's a basically a 30 meter length in the track here. Mm-hmm. It's actually much bigger than that on a 400 meter track, but that's what we're going to use. So it's four okay. times there and back. So they go four times there and back for the farmer's carry. They cross the time that yep. we've got their time for the first 400. We've got their time for the first labor. And Wicked. there's no going wrong because it's so structured. Another 400, yeah. kettlebell yeah. deadlift. 
another 400 dumbbell lunge. And as you work across, last exercise is dumbbell devil press. Okay. You know, burpee press. And then yeah, you finish yeah. there. Oh, so you, brutal. So you're going to do farmer's carry. Yeah. Kettlebell deadlift, dumbbell lunge, dumbbell snatch, burpee broad jump, kettlebell goblet squat, plate front carry, dumbbell push press, bear crawl, plate cleaner press, <clears throat> plate overhead carry, and dumbbell devil press. So it's all dumbbells, plates, and body weight. Okay. And you're running a 400 meter in between each. Amazing. When you complete the race, you get metrics for every 400 that you've done and every mm -hmm. labor. Um, and like I say, the, the logo is Deadly Dozen and the medal is a solid steel logo of the medal, which is the... Oh, that's yeah. cool, man. You know, the skull, Deadly Dozen. Top of yeah. a skull. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that's it's a dude. So it's all... And, and so yeah, I've got go so many questions, by the way. So many questions on this. Um, I love it and I hate it. I kind of, I could see myself doing it, but man, it'll, it'll be a killer. So is it one person goes at a time? How many people can you get doing it at any so, given moment? So the way it works, is we, we, at a minimum, we can have four people, four man weights. And by man, I mean man or woman. Mm -hmm. So we have a solo race where you do it on your own. You have a pairs race where you do it together, all the runs together, and you can split the labors however you like. Okay. And you have a relay race where you have a four man or woman team. And it can be mixed sex as well. And basically the first person does the first run, first labor, second person, third person. You do three runs and three labors each. Nice. And what we do is we can set them off in four-man waves. Obviously, pairs would be eight, and relay would be uh, 16. Sorry, more than that. We should have four rather than two. Sure. And what, what you'd have then is we can do in excess of 20 solos an hour, 40 pairs, and 80 relay an hour. And that would be with 12, 12-minute 12 wave times. So mm -hmm. it would prevent any sort of bottlenecking, so no one's going to catch up to anyone. Totally, yeah. So mm -hmm. you can easily do three to 600 people in a day. You're right. Sure. The most expensive thing is the timing, which I think for any yeah. real event, you need good timing. We need the yeah, metrics. Yeah, yeah. We need this to be a race that people start to develop like a sport. So the key element yeah. of this is these exercises don't change. These re this race doesn't change. Yeah. This so is, standardized. This mm. is the deadly dozen. This is a new, this is like a sport. Now, the idea is I can, if I can make this successful at my local track in my biosphere, Mm -hmm. If I can replicate in another location, then I can also license it out. There we and go. And I can have Deadly Dozen done nationally and internationally. Yeah. Where mm. there's a set standard for the Deadly Dozen. Mm. And eventually, obviously, you can have, you know, the top 12 athletes in the world, they become the Deadly Dozen. Yep. They can compete for cash prizes, <laughs> stuff like that. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to go it. with it. But that's and, it, yeah. Yeah, so... Again, few quick. Well, first thing that that struck me was obviously the success of Park Run. You know, you get your thing, you get like your online ranking and rating. You get all your data. People love that data, don't they? They they just you know again we like it and we can kind of compete with ourselves. And if it becomes a thing that you do like like a once a week thing, or I know obviously yours might be bigger events, but I totally get that that vision of what you're trying to do with that. And how far? Okay, well, other question I've got for you. I assume you've you've completed it, right? You you've yeah, done this yeah. and you've done it many times. <laughs> oh, many, many what is times. your what's your time? What's your best time so far of completing it? So I'm sub fifty, but I actually we're yet to do a full trial run on a track, so I'm gonna be faster. Okay. So I reckon I'm gonna be mid forty minutes. Okay. Um, so I do a high rocks for people's reference that know that. When I do a simulation of high rocks, because I'm I'm booked on Manchester to do a doubles and a solo in the same day. Okay. Well, I do the high rocks in sub an hour. 
So okay. I do that in about a simulation. This is so not an actual event. So I might be yeah. possibly a bit slower. But I'm in and around an hour for a high roll, so I'm fairly fit. Mm. Deadly dozen's a little bit shorter. Um, people that have done both say it's harder. Deadly dozen in in ways. Mm. Obviously, it's hard as you work, but it, it's a yes. lot more yeah, yeah. weighted movements. Yeah. And <clears throat> um, you know, one thing I wanted to be was it was like run, wait, run, wait. You know, into yeah. a labour that real contrast. Mm. So I I think the problem is with our four hundred meter run from the gym. It's actually a little bit uphill. Okay. It slow it slows you down. So I I currently done it in about 48 minutes but mm. i reckon i'll be around 46 minutes on a track Amazing. i think i can improve that yeah I we'll think... have to hold you to that when you do it we'll be like sub 46 or don't don't talk to us man you gotta gotta crush it yeah well that's it the um i did have an idea that anyone that beats my time on the race day i'll buy him a beer so i'll have to probably buy a few crates of beers because <laughs> yeah, i was gonna more. say yeah <laughs> but, some beasts turning up yeah but i reckon for most people it's anywhere from sort of the the 40 minutes into you know most people, it'll be an hour to an hour and yeah. 15, but people will be mm. going up to 90 minutes, even towards yeah. two hours. Mm. Um, and there won't be a cap on that because what we will do is we will seed them. So there will yeah. be a seeding workout. So what I want with my race is I don't want it to be one of the things where you rock up at 9 a.m. for registration and you've got mm. the whole day. Yeah. I want it to be, you've got to be there an hour before your wave. You can do your wave, you can do your race and you can lead. Yeah, we're you need to the... make it super easy, accessible. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Amazing. <laughs> and and how far along the line are you with this? So again, I see the what you showed me, the graphic. It's, it makes complete sense. It sounds really incredible. Have you got a goal of like, right, we're going we're gonna to hit a date and do it at that date? Yeah, so the registrations are open. We're going to have the first event on the 22nd of June, 2024, nice. so next summer. Mm-hmm. So the registrations are open. We've already um, got enough signups to pay for the event. So oh, we've covered well all done. the costs. Well done. Um, and obviously the timing, we've got a professional timing company coming in. I'm getting all the medals manufactured. That's so cool. <laughs> Excuse me. No and um, like I say, it's just now is is basically I'm writing a manual. So the manual's mm-hmm. currently about 60,000 words. So that mm-hmm. I've wrote a rule book for the race, which is going to be a free mm-hmm. download. But I also wanted mm-hmm. to create a manual that covers how to train because mm, smart. what was key for me was it's not just a fitness race, it's a training mm-hmm. methodology. Mm-hmm. So you could do nothing but this race and you would be fast, fit and strong. So you can I train like for this race with a pair of kettlebells because you can do the farmer's carry, you can do the deadlift, you can do kettlebell uh, lunges rather than dumbbell. You can do kettlebell snatch. You can do overhead carry, you can do the front carry. Nice. So the idea is that I've created a whole training system around the deadly dozen and that's something I really want to push, especially with the manual. So that's my main emphasis now. And mm-hmm. obviously when it comes to sort of, this isn't mass participation like a marathon where it's thousands of people, but it's enough people, it's in the hundreds that it needs mm. to be right. It can't be Mickey Mouse. It can't be, I yep. can't, as a race director, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And um, so really the next sort of eight to nine months is all about making sure that I get this right. And this totally. race, the race experience is spot on. Um, I don't want it to be a disappointment, you know, so it's yeah, yeah, a track yeah. is a big area. Mm. It's going to be a lot of people. There's going to be spectators. <clears throat> the people that come to the race expect a certain standard. And um, if they're paying 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds to enter a race, 
Well, listen, Jason, good luck with that. It sounds like we maybe need to put a date in the diary, possibly maybe just after the, that, that dirty dozen gets done. A dirty dozen? <laughs> deadly dozen gets done. <laughs> dirty dozen, maybe that's the little spin-off trade-off one there. Yeah. Um, when that deadly dozen gets done and yeah, see how it went. So good luck, man. I love your, I love your vision and the way you're going. So um, I'm just going to transfer some of the, the conversation now into maybe more of a mindset way of thinking because, you know, that's, that's, that's my wheelhouse. That's what I'm doing a lot of work in. Um, I suppose the first question I, I would like you to ask is what type of mindset would you say you yourself embody? Like you might not be able to kind of define it exactly, but we're talking mindsets. You know, what, what's made you the success and, and the things that you're getting right now? Like what, what's got you to this point? So I think one of the key elements to my mindset is definitely a little bit of naive optimism is what I call it, which is, which is quite ballsy so I like to sort of use the phrase take the leap and grow your wings on the way down and that's definitely resulted in a a lot of success for me and also you know you've got to put yourself in a position to find good luck and I'm I'm under no doubt that I've had some good luck in my time and but I put myself in the position to get that so first things first is definitely an element of fortune favors the brave you know I've not Mm. found fortune yet unfortunately but I'm definitely quite go get them you know take the risk I think that's absolutely key Yep. If you, you know, if you're constantly waiting to start, you know, you, people sort of want things to be perfect before they do them, you'll never publish the book. You know, you'll never get it done. You'll never start the, the journey. And then what business has definitely taught me and what has helped me through business, you know, lots of hardship, lots of disappointment, you know, lots of financial stress. And there has been a lot of financial stress was definitely stoicism, which, um, is something that I feel is is massively misunderstood because people see stoicism. Uh, yeah, exactly. So people people see stoicism as you know stiff upper lip, bottle it up, you know, just be hard, get tough. And it's actually in in some ways it's almost like the opposite because it, it's rather than sort of bottle it up, it's like you know taking an, an intellectual approach to what is the problem and what can you do about it, understanding that you can't affect what will happen to you in a a sense you know there's going to be these external things that will come in your way and Mm -hmm. what stoicism tries to teach is how are you going to tackle this best because i definitely think as a young man you know it's very easy to get stressed and it's very easy to get wound up and um you know business really does throw things at you and i think my reading of say marcus aurelius's meditations my reading into stoicism watching podcasts where people talk about what the stoic values are has definitely mm-hmm. helped me to sort of when I am sort of going, right, oh, this is, you know, something's going wrong or something's affected me to sort of take a step back and go, okay, like let's, let's, let's be stoic about this. Let's approach yep. this in the right way. And that's absolutely key. So that's, that's the two areas for me is the first one mm. is take the leap, like go for it. And um, because that's worked for me, you know, you've just got to go in and, and I think that's not, Sometimes that's been naive optimism, I call it, where there's a mm-hmm. little bit of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Everything's going to be fine. And sometimes that's a little bit risky, but I think mm-hmm. it's key to a certain point. And then the second point to handle all the, the stress that comes with doing that is the stoicism where you sort of take a step back and use the emotional intelligence to go, okay, like this is happening or this mm-hmm. is the position I'm in. How am I going to handle this best? Love it. Hey, you're speaking my language here, man. I was just, uh, you know, anyone, because... You might not see the video. I just held up my Daily Stoic book. I've got the Daily Stoic in the journal every single day, been for about four or five years. Got Marcus Meditations on there. Um, really enjoy William Irving. Have you come across his work? He's written a couple no, of not. really good books. 
he's um yeah he's yeah his stuff's really kind of slightly different stoic but really good as well he's um i think ryan holiday who wrote daily stoic really reveres william irving he's okay. must be in his 80s now really oh, wow. interesting stuff where did um where did stoicism begin for you where did you discover it can you remember where you first came across it or how how you maybe fell into it i think it was um meditations by marcus aurelius where mm. i think someone recommended me and i think i actually got it on audible mm-hmm. and then i bought a hard copy um and then sort of i delved into it through podcasts well yeah, you know various podcasts, podcasts. Mm. Um, where people just talked about stoicism and then just videos on youtube which are you know educational videos where i'm like okay yeah. let's let's really understand this let's go back mm. right through philosophy like you know from zenu into like socrates and epictetus yeah. and and started to delve into what all these you know different views were and what were the different philosophies at the time and mm. um, it's just the one philosophy that really sort of connected with me um, it does yeah yeah and i'm not i'm not sure why i think i think it connects it tends to connect with more men than it does women yep. True, and yeah. i think there's like... there's there's an element that i think a lot of men just connect to the side that is just um men it's not about being emotional because I think sometimes this might seem controversial, but I think sometimes people, because like suicide rates and stuff are higher in men, people say, oh, men need to be more emotional. They need to talk about their emotions more. But I think mm-hmm. it's not necessarily in a way that would be stereotypically a feminine way of doing it. So although, sure. yes, men need to talk about stuff more, it's not going to be done in the same way that, say, a female might do it. So mm, I agree. what you know what what men might do is go, I think when men look into stoicism, it goes, okay, that, that's how I express emotion. Yes. Got so it. It, yeah, it's yeah. a very sort of practical level of emotion. So it's not emotion mm. like, you know what, I'm going to go and, you know, cry, which, you know, fine. If, if, if works you, that's fine. But for me mm. personally, if I'm upset about something, actually crying doesn't help me. It makes me sure. feel like I've got a headache and I feel stressed mm. and I don't feel that comfortable. What mm. works for me is, is taking time to chill out and go, okay, let me think this through. Yes. Let me yeah. try and be very practical about it. And that's what, what really sh- shocked me was how Marcus Aurelius was this emperor in ancient Rome. And that's one of the critiques of, of Stoicism that, you know, these were guys living thousands of years ago when they could die at any point. So when it comes to mm-hmm. like Memento Mori and all this sort of stuff, um, yeah, they could die at any point. And is it as relevant for today? And what struck me was how listening to Marcus Aurelius is essentially his diary. And what he was yeah. writing about himself, I'm like, how is this so relevant to like me getting up early, or me not feeling like doing something, or me mm. being anxious about something? Or and this is a Roman emperor that I'm reading, yeah, exactly. And it seems so relevant, and I th- mm. that was shocking to me because I always look at term that people say like reading a book is like time travel because mm-hmm. you're literally you could be, you can read something that is the words, the thoughts of someone that was 200 years ago or yeah. 50 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. someone that is a historical figure, they've wrote that book. They're their words. And it's almost like you're listening to them. I always thought that's quite magical about books. Mm. And um, that's what I got when I read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius or when I heard him talking that this is this is some Roman emperor a long time ago and it's yes. relevant. Yeah, and, I and just, that's brilliant. Mm. And I just found that a lot of podcasts and self-help stuff was almost like recycled stoicism. Like It's amazing yeah. how much of it just, it's just, come from them yeah yeah if you really track it back there's so much of modern psychology has been formed from that and um, i was lucky enough to interview 
um, a guy called Dr. Martin Turner, who's um, he he does REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And again, he calls himself the practical practitioner or the rational practitioner. And a lot of his stuff is grounded in stoicism because it's a rational way of thinking and it's a very practical way of thinking. Yeah. And and yes, this REBT model that he's kind of got, it's just, it's incredibly based in that. And, you know, things that come to mind, you know, you don't control what happens, you control how you respond. That for me is is the cornerstone of, of a lot of the work I do with sport mind is going, okay, you're playing sport at the highest level, like understand what is not within your control, understand what is within your control and lean into that and separating those out letting go of the things you don't control and then understanding that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you would have come across this because I think there's such a strong link here. Um, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Have you, yeah. have you, yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's, I think his one, which really struck me was between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, we have the ability to make a choice, even if, you know, there's not much of a, of a space. And that for me is really grounded yeah. in stoicism. And when you read that book, it's very harrowing. And, you know, how like he was the only member of his family to survive the Holocaust. And but he still found optimism and to wait a way to help others. So yeah, mate, we could probably have a whole three-hour podcast on this because for me, I could just go down this rabbit hole for ages. Yeah, it, it is incredible. It's like like Epictetus, you know, who was a slave and and stuff like that. And it's just mm. yeah, for me, it just it just definitely um, just got into me straight away, and I was like, yeah, that's for me. Mm. And I yeah, know the yeah. philosophy has been the same. Mm, yeah, no, same. It's, uh, you know, well, I quite do like touching into some Buddhism, sometimes some Zen Buddhism. They've got some interesting things about the two arrows. You know, you can't be avoid being hit by the first arrow that strikes you, the first emotion, but you can avoid the second arrow. You can choose to avoid the second arrow, but that's very stoic as well, where yeah. you don't control what happens, you control how you respond. So, you know, there's some quite cool little similarities there. And, you know, you've got yeah, little analogies from Zen Buddhism about, you know, the the Chinese bamboo tree where you know, you plant that Chinese bamboo tree seed and you need to fertilize and water the soil and cultivate it. Nothing happens after a week. Nothing happens after a month. It takes five years for the first shoot to, to, to show. But after that shoot shows, it grows 90 feet in five weeks. It's this incredible wow. growth. And the moral of that story is that just because you don't see growth on the surface doesn't mean there's not growth happening underneath. To sustain that, that, that growth, the roots are growing deep and they're growing wide. So it's this idea of like habits and going, hey, listen, if you're turning up and doing the right thing, you know what, if you can't see it on the surface, internally, things are changing as well. So yeah. I do like dipping into that because there's some real cool messages. Yeah, there. I'll have I to look more into that. Yeah. I actually have a, mm. I have a similar sort of quote about the, the roots. Of, I actually use stoicism within the fitness race because I've, I'm, I'm using that as like the backbone. You know, fitness racing is inherently hard. So on the sort of more mindset side of things is a stoicism. So there was my website for Deadly Dozen actually has mm -hmm. a stoic quote on every page. And my manual oh, cool. is actually going to have stoic quotes throughout it. And I think it was one of the quotes were along the line. It might have been Epictetus or, or one of the others. I'm not sure exactly now. But it was something like, you know, something about how a strong tree needs many winds to assail it, you know, which is, nice. you know, the wind obviously is what creates the trees to, to grow their roots. What, what they actually found, I think it was at Kew Gardens or somewhere, when they had indoor trees that grew really high, they all fell over. And it's because mm. there's no, there no tree, there's no wind to stimulate the, the growth. So, you know, awesome. in order for you to be, you know, a strong you know, a strong individual, you need many winds to assail it. You know, you That's need you, you need that turmoil. You know, it's another quote that we use, which links to our labors, which is the physical exercise, is, you know, is, is um, it was something like hardship strengthens the mind like labor does the body. Mm, you know, so it's, it's, mm. it's that same principle that I'm trying to merge that, you know, this fitness racing is, is hard on the body, 
but you need yeah. that sort of hardness of the mind, that stoicism. Mm. You know, to me now, mental toughness is just goes hand to hand with stoicism. And that's yeah. not mental so toughness much. in a way that I think sometimes society puts a negative spin on. Toughness mm -hmm. is seen as bottling up. No, it's the opposite. That toughness no, is the exactly. is the embrace of it and going, okay, what can I do about it? It's not exactly. bottling up. I'm not going to think about it. It's mm. what do I think about it? It's the exact mm. opposite of what I think a lot of society portray being masculine or tough to be, which yep. is what I actually think, especially a lot of young boys and men, you know, it's why I wanted to join the army, why I wanted to do combat sports. What was the, the, the real psychology behind that was me wanting to be tough, me wanting to be brave. And that wasn't a, a negative thing. That was a positive thing that actually was channeled in the right way and create, you know, made me a lot more disciplined, made me a lot more motivated. And that's the sort of mindset that I think, you know, a lot of young men and women, I'm sure as well, mm. really sort of identify with as, you know, 100%. I want to be a bit more of a warrior. I want to be tough. Mm. It requires at a young age, you know, when I, you know, I've followed testosterone now as like more, you know, good how it requires the mentorship. And I yeah. think that's where stoicism is, is perfect because it's just them mm. snippets. Some people see it as quite trivial, some of the quotes and the snippets of information. But I think some of that, you know, almost like poetry because it's, you know, it's all very, you know, it's how you interpret it. Mm. It's, 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 it's good to just give people that thoughtful, you know, insightful quote that just helps. And it, I think they actually help a lot more people than people realize, yeah. you know, people mm. often are quite negative about motivational quotes online from influence. I understand that. Mm. But when you do read into the philosophy of stoicism, it, it does yeah. help. Yeah, uh, again, I'm I'm down that rabbit hole with you. You know, as soon as you do research, you know the roots of it and and how it's helped. It, it does make a huge difference. And something you said there that that's interesting to bring up this, you know, this concept of failure. That you know sometimes you know we we might be you know part of the society saying, hey, like you know we we give kids medals for just competing for coming last, and it's like you you bring them up in a way that that's in, like encouraging a fixed mindset that goes, oh, I can't deal with with failure and losing. Whereas actually something like stoicism goes. Hey, the real world's going to knock you hard. Like you, you're going to get out there and things that you think are going to work ain't going to work. You're going to go through so many hardships. And actually, if you've been set up to just not fail and actually be okay with not failing, I think that it's a really steep slope on the way down. But, you know, when I've introduced those and even to young teens and stuff and part of my education, it's like, you can just see the light bulbs going like, oh, okay, I can actually, I can be mentally strong by, by being more self-aware of myself, by talking to myself in a rational way. So that's mental strength. I'm like, hell yeah, that's mental strength. It's not about gritting your teeth and looking physically tough at things, which is a part of it, of course, but it's going, can I, can I rationally navigate this landscape? And what's the next thing that I can control that has an influence on the thing I'm doing, you know, getting down that, that and whenever I bring stoicism back into it, it really kind of resonates. So yeah, like yeah, I love it, man. I've actually got the, um, this is one of my favorite ones, which is a coin that I have on my desk. And uh, it's it's the inner citadel, which is nice. the old thing, nice. which is, you know, your inner strength is a mighty fortress, you know. So that's the whole idea is, I think that's like a depiction of Marcus Aurelius with a fortress within his mind. Wicked. You know, you know when you hear about like the sort of Jews and Auschwitz and whatnot, and, and they often use that as examples, you know, there's specific um, you know, Jews that went through you know, literal hell. Yeah. And some of them couldn't be broken because of their inner citadel. You know, no matter exactly. what the guards did to them, they, you mm. know, trying to dehumanize them, they, they still yep. inside, they were, they were human. I mm. think it was Epictetus or maybe Socrates that believed that 
even slaves should have access because obviously in the ancient world slavery was you know far more normal unfortunately but they believe mm -hmm. that even them should have they should have access to um philosophy yeah. and stoicism because they fought the ma everyone's mind even though they believed that you could have slaves and free people yeah. they, you know which isn't very liberal they were quite liberal in the <laughs> sense that they 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 thought that even the slaves should have had philosophy and stoicism and that that's, awesome. that's yeah, a big yeah, yeah. one for me in terms of mm. In a citadel for me is very much if I were to go through something that is very hard or something were to happen, you know, financially, in a citadel is is definitely a place that I that is something that I would think about. Where like no matter what anyone does or says, like internally within me, like I can just retreat to that in a citadel and and love fine. it. So interesting you said two quick things that came up there. So um, my coin I've got, which is at my other place, is the Amorfati coin. So I've got yeah, the, yeah. The, the the love of your faith. Like whatever you got dealt with in the moment, you lean into it. Whether that's the good or the suffering, we need that to grow. Like your version of the roots of the tree. It's If you see it in a certain mindset, that suffering or that difficult thing is only going to make you stronger. It adds a, as an armor suit to you. So yeah, I love that you got a coin because I got my one. And then the inner citadel, I, you know, I'm not sure how much you've read of Nelson Mandela and the, st and the stuff he went through, but he said that very similar. I'm sure he would have read Stoicism at some point, but you know, the the guards on Robben Island when he was having to kind of break the bricks, when when they would tell him to run, he would walk. When they, he would he would always find a way to go. Yes, you have my body, but you don't have my mind. You know, you, you, that inner citadel, his inner citadel was unbelievable. And then obviously he came out of prison for 35 years straight away forgave and then moved on with the thing he could control i think if you study nelson mandela's mindset about how he dealt with that injustice and then how he came out and had no it didn't really hold on to the past he was going what is the next thing i can influence incredible you know he's literally like probably like stoic 101 even though no one really kind of connects that you know there's some real strong stoicism behaviors that he developed wow mm, yeah really cool stuff man yeah, awesome. Right. Um, listen, we've had a great chat. There's so much more I want to talk about, but I want to respect your time. And I'm sure the audience also, hopefully if they're still here, they'll yeah. still be enjoying this. Um, probably one of the last things I want to ask, you know, we've covered so much. Again, I genuinely think we should sit down and talk again at some point because oh, there's so many little to. rabbit holes. Sounds like you've had a good, good time today. Is there anything that we maybe haven't covered that you, you think that we should have maybe had a talk about, whether it's something to do with your business, even the mindset? I did have one question about what you notice as a common trait in high performers, you know, like the mindset of high performers. Um, that was one thing, but maybe we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to think about that one. Yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, in all honesty, I think it's like you said, I think, I think people, one of the traits of high performers is stoicism. I think it's one of the things that people don't, if, if you've not read into stoicism, you don't know it. Um, mm -hmm. But essentially what they're doing is, is, is being stoic, aren't they? I think that's a massive trait of, of high performers and um, yeah. i also think an element is the key to sort of high performance is is it becomes non-negotiable and um, and that's that's a difference that i see in that sort of high performance people compared to sort of the the average joe and also the people in the gym like the general clientele that the people that are there day in day out and the people that aren't the people that fall off the wagon the people that miss things is it becomes non-negotiable it becomes part mm -hmm. of the life. It becomes such a habit. It's just, it's not a question of, oh, should I go to the track? It's not a question of, should I go to the gym? These people mm -hmm. tend to have a very stoic mindset, but they also have a mindset that's very, um, you know, black and white when it comes to certain things that it's not, 
oh, should I go to the gym tonight? It's I'm doing it. It's just mm. yeah, I think that that's it. And it's it's that's what I see from the, the best performers that I work with. Is it, it's I think this is where I'm jealous of someone's tagline, which is Nike's tagline, which is just do it. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the best taglines in the world. Just do it. Yeah. And I mm. just think that the top performers that I work with just do it. Mm, um, and I it's like, like that. I'm sort of selling night really. But yeah. it's, um, have you seen um have you seen air the 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 film on that where they have you not seen it? Oh, it's brilliant. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck talking about how they how they got Air Jordan, how they developed oh, the wow. whole shoe of Air Jordan. Yeah, it, it's it's on it. Amazon. It only came on Amazon maybe about a week ago. It was in the cinema about six months ago. Unbelievable, and it's got like their Nike philosophies on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, it's just called Air, but it's it's got five or six big actors in it. It's yeah. an incredible movie. Oh, Go I'll check it out. Watch. I, I read his book, Phil Knight's book. You know, Shoe yes. Doc. That was a great yeah, book. He's in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, he um, talks all about how they got him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I just think that yeah, they just do it. They they literally do just they rock up and they get the session done. And there's no love it. And I think that's the high before. And I think sometimes you've got to you know it's like what's his name? You know, get hard. You've just, just literally got to. Um, when it comes to training and training hard and, and taking on the mindset, there's a lot of people mm. that will talk about, you know, the things that you have to do. And sometimes mm. you just got to do it and you just got to be, mm. get there and get into that mindset that it's non-negotiable. Like it's Love not, that. oh, should I do this? It's you're doing it. It's mm. like, you know, brushing your teeth. David, David Goggins, isn't it? He's exactly, like, you know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the man. But actually, as you're talking, I, I got my Daily Stoic book out. And actually, I remember from this morning because I journaled on it. So the lesson for today was for Marcus Aurelius. When forced, as it seems, by circumstance into utter confusion, get a hold of yourself quickly. Don't be locked out of the rhythm any longer than necessary. You'll be able to keep the beat if you are constantly returning to it. So, and then the interpretation is like, you know, a, a great musician, if they miss a beat, that the whole concert doesn't stop and they're all kind of moping about it. They miss a beat, they get back in the rhythm. You said falling off the wagon. I, I love that idea of going, yeah, we're not going to be perfect all the time. Perfection is not 10 out of 10 every day. Perfection is eight out of 10 majority of the time. That's my little interpretation of what perfectionism is. But I love that idea. If you're out of your rhythm, it's it's the mental strength and how quickly you come back to it. For me, that's the, that's the defining term. I believe mental toughness is. It's going, we're going to be out of it. We ain't going to be ourselves, but the the speed of coming back to it for me defines that ability of mental strength. So quite a, quite a timely quotes yeah. from this morning yeah, talking about that right now. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree with that. Is that, that's the key for me is I always say a session is a session in the bag and like a bad week in the, the broader picture of the annual plan is not much. And I do think that I agree with that. Absolutely. That it's these people that are non-negotiable and when it doesn't happen because of whatever external factor or, you know, it might be illness mm-hmm. or injury. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. it's just straight back on. Yes. And that that's bit's it. non-negotiable. It's just, they're mm. not effective. The people that I see as the most inconsistent, they have a bad week or they do this or they eat this or whatever yeah. it is from a general clientele point of view, right up to an athlete point of view. And they sort of, it's, it's like a huge blow to them. Whereas yes. ever, the ones that are the higher performers, it's just brushed off. All right, I've got this yeah. industry. I've got this injury. I need to rehab it, blah, 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 around back. Right, yeah. this is happening yeah, on yeah. back. You know, they just bounce mm. back so fast. And that's, and that's probably it, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. I, I tend to do quite a lot of work with perfectionists that so you might kind of come across this, that, and it's such binary thinking. It's either, it's either a, a perfect 10 or it's a nothing. And it's like high performers, the, the, the Steve Jobs of this world, the Jordans of this world, they failed so many times and they know that that failure is part of them growing. Whereas a lot of perfectionists go, well, I can't fail. And if I fail, I'm seen as like a lower member of my tribe. And it's just, it's the biggest fear. But 
I think a high performer looks at failure and goes, yeah, like you, you, you grow your wings on the way down. It's like, you know, you've probably had so many failures, but each failure has been a, a little iteration into the right direction, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and actually this going on for this, this is more of a sort of business side and going back to sort of people's productivity and that. And it was actually my first publisher that gave me a really, really good piece of advice. And this advice you need to sort of, it needs to be explained really, because it comes okay. across like you're doing the bare minimum, like, like minimal, um, what do they call it? Like the minimum standard to sell it. But he said, okay. things have to be good enough. Mm. And by good enough, it doesn't mean like, get it to the minimum standard that it will sell or like the minimum level, like, you know, like minimum wage, minimum effort type mentality. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Exactly not what it is. No. Good enough is like, if you try and get it to where it's perfect, you, it'll never be done. No. So it's like, get it to the point where it's good enough and go. Because if Got you it. don't make that leap, it just doesn't work. And I always say that to people, make it good enough. Like, Love you, that. it's not going to be perfect. Get it good enough and go. Hmm. because that's where you'll learn on that journey. And that's what I've got hmm. with my book. So although a lot of people would look at me and say, oh, you're, you're very much a perfectionist when it comes to every aspect of your fitness race, you know, every aspect of these programs, you're very, you know, when it comes in the gym, like people putting stuff back in the way people, you know, they joke about, oh, you've got an OCD, oh, you're, <laughs> you're a perfectionist. And I actually say to people now, like, they'll say, oh, what do you do if you find a book and it's got like errors in it and stuff like this and mistakes? I'm not even bothered. Yeah, shrug your I'll shoulders. Go, I don't control it. I can it's open, out of my control. I can open <laughs> any of my books and I'll find spelling mistakes. They say that mm. the best way to edit your book is spend thousands of hours proofreading it, get editors to read it, publish it, open to a random page, you'll find a spelling mistake. <laughs> right, that's the way it works. It's happened with that. every one of my books. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. If I literally, what, one of the, the things that I'm proudest of myself about is that I will just, I'll get it, I'll just get it out there. And mm. like I say, I want it to be good enough and I'm, I'm proud of it. But I look mm -hmm. back at some of my earlier books and I go, I'm not proud of them anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was like, this is one of the proudest moments of my life. You know, I published this book. I look back at some of them and go, oh, I don't like that really. I'm going to change a lot of that. And I will work on changing aspects of it, mm -hmm. especially if some of it's outdated or I think, actually, I've got different views. I'll go back mm -hmm. and republish. Mm -hmm. But I don't let that stand in my way. People, you know, same when it comes to podcasts. If you want to have the perfect podcast from podcast one, ain't going to happen, mate. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong. And I think this translates into like athleticism and, and, and for athletes that want to compete and do stuff is if you want to be at a certain level, you've got to just get out there and go, and you've got yeah. to train sometimes to get here. Even if you're here, you've got to operate at that level, but you've just got, got to, you just got to get working and, and, mm. and be good enough. Love it, mate. Such good advice. I think, yeah, don't let perfectionism get in the way of good enough. You know, that that's kind of what I'm hearing you say, you know, it's, perfectionism can be such a it, it 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 it's inert it can stop you in its tracks but you know what momentum is so key once you and that's why i asked you about the continual writing it feels like you've got the momentum and you're, you're just rolling with it man and you know what it sounds sounds incredible so um one thing so i would like it. to say just on that was mm. obviously i've made it seem like i i'm like this sort of non-stop sort of writing and productivity but like i will i think as a byproduct of being quite creative and, and liking writing like i'm a serial procrastinator and okay. if it you know when it comes to the evening i can what i'll do is is what i call like putting out small fires so i will check book sales i'll then check social media and then i'll do this i'll check the website then i'll do something else and i'll do and what i'm doing is like it's what i call like false productivity Okay. You know, I feel mm. like I'm being productive because mm. I've looked on my book sales, I've looked on my Facebook, <laughs> I've looked on my Instagram, I've looked on this. 
and, and I will be, you know, I don't want it to come across that I'm like super, super productive and don't have any things. Like in terms of, I'll go, right, I'll put a podcast on or something while I'm doing this medial work that I don't have to concentrate too much. I'll yeah. spend 20 minutes looking for the podcast that I want to watch. <laughs> you know, I'll, I will do stuff that is me feeling productive, but it's not productive. Mm. It's not actually getting anything done. It's like doing a to-do list that makes you feel great. But you, mm. by the time you've finished it, you've finished a to-do list. You've not actually actioned anything. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I'm really bad for. And that's mm. where I really concentrate on that. And I just wanted to say that as a sort of, um, just because obviously I think I've portrayed as, you know, I do get a lot done. Mm. But my biggest battle is procrastination. Mm. As in distracting myself. Like, oh, I'll go do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Oh, wait, there is something mm. in my shed. And I'm terrible for that. Well, but I think th- it's a byproduct you. of creativeness. Mm. Yeah, could be. And again, thank you for that, that honesty and, and, you know, talk about it because I think it's important people hear that because sometimes, yes, you can hear someone who has been inverted commas successful, whatever success is defined, that's a whole thing in itself um, and go like, yeah, like, like he's got a perfect and he never kind of does anything wrong. But no, it's really, really good that you say that. So um, Jason, where can people find you? Can you signpost? Yeah, I'll put this in the show notes as well, but where's the best place people can follow you, get your stuff? How can they get in, get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about things? So the the biggest sort of social media I have is my my Instagram, which is Strength and Conditioning Course is the name of it. But you'll find me by putting in Coach Jason Curtis. I'll come up if you Google me. You'll find all my websites. Um, Instagram. If you comment on any of my posts, it will send you the free book. And some of them are like fifty pages. Some of them are three hundred pages. Like literally, one is over three hundred nice. pages. So you comment on the post, like just yeah. say send or thanks, and it will send you the the book. Wow. And there's literally hundreds of them. So that's and that's automated, route. is it? Have you got that to an automated I've process got that now? automated now, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're that. partnered with Instagram and that, so it's not like a sort of third party sort of yeah, yeah. illegal thing for the, the social media. So yeah, as, as soon as you... Basically, I couldn't keep up with past yeah, posts. too much. Mm. So as soon as you comment now, it'll just send you a message with the Dropbox link and you'll get the ebook for free. And there's literally hundreds. And I tend to post about three times a week now because just to keep up with everything. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you Google Coach Jason Curtis, you'll find my academy. You'll find me on Instagram as well through Coach Jason Curtis. And then mm-hmm. obviously, if you're interested in the fitness race, it's just deadlydozen.co.uk. Amazing. Um, and that's got its own Instagram as well, which is just deadlydozen. And Perfect. hopefully that will grow because that's in its infancy. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's where you can find me. And, and yep. feel free to email me. I get a lot of messages on Instagram, so I won't always get back to all of them. But feel free to email mm-hmm. me because I'm, I'm always happy to help people out. Oh, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Diamond, this has been such an insightful conversation. We've gone down so many cool rabbit holes. Genuinely had about seven or eight more questions that I want to talk to you about. But uh, listen, if we can get a date in the diary, maybe just after that, uh, you know, deadly dozen, I think that'll be a cool place to maybe to kick off again. But Jason, you've been absolutely treat. Love what you're doing. Keep it up, man. And listen, I think we're going to keep in touch because I've got a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you about things offline as well. Awesome. Cheers. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.